Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Well, hello everybody, and oh, all the cameras are shut off, so I'm done seeing actual people. I'm going to move this out of here. We're in Leviticus 25, and you know, it's been kind of a weird thing. As we finished Genesis and as we finished Exodus, I didn't get as sad as I as we're doing these last couple chapters of Leviticus. I feel kind of like you, you finish a journey of your own when you study Leviticus, where you, with Genesis and Exodus, you read about other people's journeys. But at some point, when God lays out the law, and God says, this is what I think is right, and this is what I think is wrong, if you want to follow me, do these things, that's how you worship me, then you get to the end of Leviticus, and at some point in Leviticus, we've hit a topic that targets something in our life that we want to hold on to, or we have a grip on, or there, there's just going to be some element of something, because if we're all sinners... There's going to be some sort of sin in our life that Leviticus points out. Um, but if we want to worship God, if we want to uh, be reverencing the God that defines what is right and wrong, eventually you're going to hit something like that. So the sacrifices. In the first few chapters, uh, we saw the sacrifices that we're supposed to give. And for greedy people, that's going to be a struggle to give sacrifices. Then we saw like what should priests look like and how should priests eat and how should priests deal with leprosy and how should priests handle things. And, and there's a work that God expects of his priests. And for people that are slothful, that work is something that they would struggle with. Then there's a holy law that says here's what's right and wrong. It, it, it um, reflects the Ten Commandments, but it expands on them and even gets to the point where God says, I'm worried about what's in your heart. And you shouldn't just do the Ten Commandments out of obligation you should do them out of love and because i think these are what the right things are and then god gives us a law for atonement and then he goes back to the law after that and then we see what is a lifestyle for all the people of israel that they should be following until then we get to the end of leviticus and we just got done with the feasts uh, that are there and even the feasts um, and the rituals and the worship that comes with god are things that are a change of lifestyle and tonight we're going to get into the sabbath of the country the Sabbath for the land, Jubilee for the people. And these are entire economic systems that God asked them to do. And for all of Leviticus so far, the people of Israel start out pretty well doing what God's asked them. But this is the thing that the people of Israel struggle with. They never really did Jubilee. And because they don't do that, Israel gets in trouble with God later on. In the, in the as we go through the Bible, we're going to see that. Um, but so I really, that idea of just at some point in Leviticus, you're going to hit something that is just so difficult to do, but that's the thing where if you hand that over, God blesses you. And God says, I'm going to, I'm going to be with you when you do that. So in chapter 24, which we, we just got done with, we saw that there's this oil that the people are supposed to provide for. The people are supposed to provide for the bread for God's table of fellowship. And the, the people of Israel are supposed to remove defiant people from the congregation. 
uh, which is a hard thing to wrestle with too. But at some point, they have to be judicious. They have to have a legal system and hold people to it. And we've seen that with Sabbath, which we're going to start off with tonight, there's been Sabbath every seven days. And then we're going to start out, there's going to be Sabbath every seven years. And then there's going to be, um, or, or seven times a year with the feasts, there's going to be these, these kinds of feast Sabbaths. And then there's going to be a Sabbath every seven years, a septannual Sabbath. And then every seven times seven years, there's going to be a Jubilee Sabbath. So apparently this, this seven keeps coming up again and again and again. And it's no wonder why the Jewish people kind of looked at these numbers and saw some meaning in them. Because God seems to structure the calendar of Israel around the number seven. Um, but let's dig in. Verse one, Sabbath of the seventh year. Uh, and the Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land, which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. When you come into the land is not if you come into the land. I think it's great when God talks about what he's going to do. He speaks of it as though it's already completed and, and it's it's a done thing. And that's because when God's hand is in it, he will do it. Um, the land here is Eretz. We've seen that word a lot in the Old Testament. It's the same earth that God talked about when he created the heavens and the earth. So when it says, when you come into the land which I gave you, uh, it, it is the same earth type word that we're using there. Um, and it is not necessarily specific to boundaries that we're going to get later, um, but it's just this idea of when you arrive at the place where God wants you on this earth, um, then you shall keep this Sabbath to the Lord. Sabbath, therefore, is not for, it's not necessarily something that you start with in the faith. Part of what you start with are the sacrifices and things way back at the beginning of Leviticus. Um, this is for a people that are following God that they start to do this. So we see that the Sabbath is not only going to apply to human beings, but it's going to apply to the land. Then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. So six years you shall sow your field, verse 3, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest, a Sabbath of Sabbaths for the land. A Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard, and what grows on its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it's a year of rest for the land. So this is a major economic law, right? You have to structure the whole country around the idea that on year seven you're not going to do anything with your fields or your vineyards. And I think vineyards is a general enough word in the Hebrew that that would include their orchards too. Um, so it's anything that would kind of be a perennial uh, plant in their, in their um, agricultural system. So all these crops and vineyards are going to go fallow for one year. Anyone who knows anything about botany uh, knows that agriculturally this is an outstanding practice, even by today's standards. What happens when you do this is the soil replenishes its nutrients. And some of those berries and crops that fall to the ground and actually replant new seeds create new fruit and new trees that'll start coming up because plants age even when they're taken care of. So it renews the, the orchards, it renews the vines, uh, and it replenishes the soil. That's a really practical thought. Um, now, today, we do crop rotation, and we're still based on the same idea of leaving the ground to go fallow. Today, we do it because of science. Uh, for Moses, at this time, they did it out of pure faith. They had no understanding of the science behind this. 
Um, or at least we don't know that they don't have any evidence that they know or knew anything about that at the time. And it doesn't say all the land at the same time. It just says every seven years the land shall go fallow. So what Jews did with this rule is they rotated. So out of seven farmers, they would rotate who was going to go fallow what year so that there would still be crops in Israel. And I don't know if that's the spirit of what this says. So it's a lot like the thing where I think last week Alyssa was asking about stoning. Like, did they throw stones to stone people or did they go off a cliff to stone people? And it's the same kind of thing with the Sabbath of the land. There's a way that they did it initially. There's a way that they started to do it in tradition. Uh, but one of the things they did to kind of work around this idea of everybody taking the year off is they would rotate who took the year off. Or they would sell their land to their neighbor and then they would work the land, they would work their neighbor's land. So, <laughs> I, so part of me, I love how Jews get around the law sometimes. What grows of his own accord, you shall not reap, nor gather vin vineyards or the grapes of your untended vine. So if I sell my vine to you for one year, it's not my vine anymore. Now I can go agriculturally um, harvest that vine. And that's part of how they got around the law. Nobody's smiling. I think that's hilarious. Um, it's really ungodly and sinful and against what the passage says. So I suppose I should be more serious about it. But that was one of the ways the Jews got around the rule. Um, so they would do one-year uh, one sales on their land. A solemn rest for the land is that people are expected, if they did this right, and again, there's no biblical evidence that they did this, um, they, they disobey in this regard. So if they did it right, think about what the one year off would be. And in academia, this was done. So every seven years, a professor, even at secular institutions today, gets usually a Sabbath or they get a sabbatical. And a sabbatical is you take a year and do whatever you want and the institution pays you. And we've seen that as a healthy thing in academia because you can refresh and renew your mind. You can go study things you're interested in and then hopefully bring that fruit back to your classroom. So these practices did get adopted even in secular places where in Israel they did not necessarily get adopted. But farmers could do repairs. They could build furniture. It, they can do anything but harvest their crops. So they can, they can take up new crafts and sell their crafts at the market and, and make an income that way. They can get a job at Walmart. Uh, they can go out and do road construction if they want to. So they can do other things during this time, but the land is going to get a rest. Um, it's also, or traditionally, it could be seen as a time to travel. So this could be theoretically something that in the early years of history we see a tourist industry. Um, or they could use it as a time to serve. And they could use it as a time to just bless people and reflect uh, on, on life and to serve God. In Deuteronomy 31, 10 through 12, this Sabbath time is said to be a time for Bible study and reading. So imagine every seven years that you take one year off your job and all you do is study the Bible for one year. Um, so I'm going to read that Deuteronomy passage. This is Deuteronomy 31, and I'm starting in verse 10. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, in the solemnity of the year of release, in the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israels come to appear before the Lord thy God in the place where he shall choose, Thou shalt read this law before all Israel in their hearing. So the whole country gets together for a massive Bible study in year seven. P gather the people together, men, women, children, and thy stranger that's within the gates, and that they may hear, that they may learn, and fear the Lord your God and observe and do all the words of the law. So when Deuteronomy is getting written, the law that they're talking about is Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. 
especially Leviticus, they're just going to read this to everybody where everyone in the country has to absorb this and maybe run into something that they need to struggle with. But if they fear the Lord, they're going to just give that up to the Lord and start to obey and comply with what the Lord has. So if you're doing this, then you can generally speak and get through it. I also think of just Bible study in general. So if you don't do this every seven years and you read roughly three to four chapters a, a day, um, or three to four chapters a week will roughly speaking get you through the Bible in seven years. So if you're doing, say, a Sunday morning Bible study, a Sunday evening Bible study, and something on Wednesdays, you're generally going to knock off about three to four chapters a week, and you should get through the Bible every seven years of your life. So there's this rotation for the land, which also mirrors, according to Deuteronomy, that every seven years you're going to remind people what the law is. So they go to church once every seven years and study the whole book. Verse 6 and the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you. For you, your male and female servants, your hired man, the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, and all produce shall be for food. All its produce shall be for food. So Sabbath produce, well, where does this come from? First of all, they can still eat because they still have livestock. So every seven years, if the land's getting a rest, they still have livestock they can live off of. And they shall still have, um, they should have other things other than vineyards. So um, raspberries, for instance, or strawberries would be a crop that would continue to produce even if you didn't tend to that area. So some of their perennial crops would be things that they could probably harvest, depending on how the local rabbi interprets the law. Um, and they leave some of these be, and we're going to see here in 18 through 22 that whatever does start to grow can be hand-picked. So people could still like go out of the house and pick what they need for supper, but everything else they're just going to leave in the crop. They're not necessarily going to profit off of that land. So they leave their, their harvesting equipment in the barn, and they go out and do things by hand for one year, and they remember that God is there. This separates the people from the land as though they are caretakers and stewards of the land, but they are not the owners of the land. So if they obey this law, they're admitting that God has authority over the land versus them having authority over the land. And it sets up Matthew 25, where Jesus tells the story of the landowner and these stewards of the land that are supposed to care for it. So you have this image, and it sets a culture that the Jewish people aren't supposed to suck their land dry of every penny they can get out of it. If every seven years you just take a year off, you're not necessarily going to be kind of squeezing your land for everything it's worth. If they actually do this, Imagine the blessing they would have. And I know this because in academia, we get Sabbath. And it's a wonderful thing. And you come back from Sabbath refreshed and renewed and ready to go. But imagine the witness that a country would have if all of Israel takes a year off, every other nation of the world that knows of them would say, wow, they're in this Sabbath year. And look, everybody's still eating and they're still thriving and they're still doing things. What kind of God do they follow that actually does this for them? So if they did it, it would have been a witness, a beacon, a lighthouse for the world to see. And I think they would still be doing it today if they were faithful in it. Chapter 26 then shows a promise to give the land to Israel's enemies if they don't do this. And that's exactly what's going to happen. In 2 Chronicles 36, uh, they disregard the Sabbath 70 times. So God exiles them for 70 years and he gives the land its break because it's his land. So they disregard it in spirit too. Uh, the whole selling back and forth, the crop rotation idea, 
Um, they would work each other's land to get around this rule. So they cheat the rule, they disregard it in practice, and they disregard it in spirit. Uh, which is kind of sad, but you should just, as we're, if we want to understand this chapter, we need to understand it is that this is God's hope for the land that never gets fulfilled. So then you start to ask, well, why do we have these things that God wants to see happen if they never get fulfilled in human history, unless they're going to get fulfilled? So listen to that with, with the, that lens, listen to verse eight, and you shall count seven Sabbaths for year of years for yourself Seven times seven years, that's 49. And the time of seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. So they add it up just so you don't have to be a math person. The emphasis on the calendar that we've seen here is to directly keep this law. Indirectly, they have to keep records to accurately track that. If you want to track something over 49 years, somebody has to be in charge of the calendars. So it creates an Israel that tracks the calendar. And I think that's kind of cool because... When God makes promises and they get fulfilled, which we see hundreds of times through the Old Testament, the Jewish people actually have accurate records to track that they happened, this happened on that day and this happened on that day. So unlike any other culture, because of this rule of Jubilee, this 49 years thing, they actually have really well-kept records and what you could say is a longitudinal study of God's promises. So God creates that in their culture by creating this rule. So and just for what it's worth, the 70th Jubilee year, or 49 times 49, uh, since, since John, so if you take, so if you take 70 70s, Jubilee times Jubilee, that was in 2015. So we're really close to when the Jubilee year was supposed to be there. So, and boy, in 2015, some of the, the Bible scholar people were really excited. They were thinking, this is, this is it. Jesus is going to return because... We have 70 times 7. The problem with that is 70 times 70 is 49. Jubilee is actually on the 50th year. So you have to take 49 times 49 and maybe, anyways, we are at the beginning of a window of time, which is really interesting if you are into any of that when is the Lord coming back dialogue. Verse 9, uh, ironic, well, not ironically, appropriately, we're talking about trumpets. Uh, next, then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the 10th day of the seventh month, the day of atonement, and you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. So we have the feast of trumpets on day one from last chapter, and now we have it on day 10 on this year, this 50th year, you're going to blow the trumpets twice. And every trumpet's going to get blown all around the place and the whole place will be celebrating um, and there will be these trumpets. So that's why it gets interesting when you see seven, 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 seven times seven, and then you get these kind of these blocks of things where you're going to blow the trumpets. If you look at Revelation chapters 8 through 11, there's seven trumpets that get blown. There seems to be some connection there, but not having hit Revelation yet, we're not going to get into that dialogue tonight. Um, it's a good bi midweek Bible study for you if you want to look into that. Verse 10. You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee to you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee to you, and in it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for its jubilee. It shall be holy to you, and you shall eat its produce from the field, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all of its inhabitants, and there you have it. So this idea of um, 
proclaiming, oh, and you shall eat its produce from the field. The part where it says uh, in verse 10 that you shall proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants, that's the verse that's inscribed upon the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. Uh, they have Leviticus 25.10 saying exactly that from this verse. And I think it's kind of cool when, we, when we're going through the Bible, we'll, we'll try to flag those things. Uh, and it was commemorated. So the, the assembly ordered the Liberty Bell in, in 1751 to commemorate the 50th anniversary of William Penn's Charter of Privileges for the state of Pennsylvania. So that was written in 1701, and in 1751 they create a bell that has a verse about Jubilee on it and uh, on the 50th anniversary. So to think that our founding fathers weren't keenly aware of the book of Leviticus and were um, experts in the Bible and knew what they were talking about is silly. Um, they knew exactly what they were doing, and they knew exactly which verse to put on a 50th year anniversary bell that's going to get uh, put together. So they understood the significance. They understood returning to the land. They understood freedom and the ability for God to make things free. Jubilee in the Hebrew means a clamor or acclamation, a shout of joy, a big noise. It would be a word that you use to describe the sound of the trumpets when they blow. It's a battle cry, and it's usually a, a, a noise that would be associated with victory and overcoming. So if everybody come home, comes home, everyone reunites with the people they love and their family, and God's providing the food for one year, this looks a lot like the Garden of Eden before sin. For one year every 50 years, God's going to provide all the food, and you get to hang out with your family and friends and just take a year off and celebrate and shout the trumpets of victory. So they get this little piece of heaven, this little image of heaven every 50 years as a hint of what's to come under the reign of the Lord when the Lord returns. Interestingly, there's only one other place in the Bible where we see the word jubilee. And jubilee really only exists in, the, in this chapter of Leviticus where that word gets used, um, in part, I think, because they never really did jubilee. So they never experienced this little piece of heaven that God was trying to give to them. It's usually called Sabbath when we read about it in Deuteronomy and in other places. They just call it a Sabbath of Sabbaths um, as a rest, and they, they don't really ever get to it. The closest we get to this idea of Sabbath is when Jesus steps into Na the Nazareth synagogue and he reads out Isaiah 61, and a lot of kind of theologians believe Jesus was declaring a year of jubilee when he went in and read that uh, Isaiah 61 in the temple. And of course, they didn't like that he read that. They got very upset because who's this carpenter's son to, to declare a, a, a jubilee to people? In Numbers 36.4, we see the only other time that the word jubilee gets used as a, in the Bible. And it's a reference to God taking his inheritance that he wanted to give to his people and giving them to somebody else. So the only other time outside of Leviticus we see the word jubilee is when God's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this away from you. And I'll read it, Numbers 36, 4. And when the jubilee of the children of Israel comes and their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry, so their inheritance will be taken away from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. God's going to take the inheritance he's giving to Israel and he's going to give it to people that marry into the family. And that's the only time it gets used. In context, this is a practical application of uh, do this or don't do this. And in numbers, it doesn't read like a prophecy. But when you take it out of context and read it by itself, it sure sounds like a prophecy that there's going to be a time when God makes Jubilee and he takes that inheritance and shifts it. 
Um, but in numbers, again, you have to take it out of context. Numbers doesn't say this will happen in the future. It just says this is the consequence if you don't do this. Practical law of application in numbers, and then it can read like a prophecy if you wanted to, that God will use this time of Jubilee to bless anyone he wants. And you say, well, how can he do that? Because he says he's going to bless Israel, and he does bless Israel. Um, and we'll see that here in a little bit. But God is God, and he's going to bless who he pleases. And I'm grateful for that because I happen to not be Jewish. Um, so I'm looking forward to a time when I might be blessed. Let's keep going. I should say this, too. I kind of thought you can even, like, I started this week in Bible study, and I thought maybe we can wrap up Leviticus this week. It's kind of all closure stuff. And then I looked at the raw size of this chapter, and I don't know if you all saw, like, this is a huge chapter, and I don't know how they decide where to make the chapter breaks, but we're going we're gonna to plow through the whole chapter, but that's why I'm talking so fast. Verse 13. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession, and if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. Um, verse 15. According to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor, and according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell you. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase its price. According to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price. For he sells to you according to the number of years of the crops. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall, excuse me, you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Okay, understanding on this, let's just first kind of understand what it says. It basically says, that all of the land goes back to the owners when they initially settle the land and each of the tribes gets its territory. No matter what happens in that 50 years, all that land's going to be put back in the hands of the families that first owned it. So there will be a land-owning family, uh, and that family can subdivide the land, but it's going to go back to that family that owned it at the beginning. This prevents uh, really any massive accumulation of wealth. You can get fairly wealthy as a Jewish person, but at some point you can't have like entire nations worth of land. So it, it prevents kind of moguls from forming in Israel because there's no point to it. And verses 15, 16 really emphasize you're going to plan your whole economy around this. So if I sell you a piece of land and we're only two years away from Jubilee, you know you're buying two years worth of crops and we price it accordingly. And then the other verse kind of flips the direction. If it's if we have 48 years left of Jubilee, you're going to pay me a lot more money because you're getting 48 crops. Um, so they basically say, instead of making excuses for Jubilee, you need to adjust yourself to Jubilee. And I just felt like this is something that happens a lot with the children of God. We want to dictate our own economy, and we want to dictate our own schedules, and the Bible here is basically asking Israel to work around God and not have God work around them. That this is God's land and it's going to go to the people he gives it to and it's going to be returned or given away based on how God sees it. So it creates this balance between a communal state where everybody owns everything and that's not what God's setting up here and it's not really a capitalistic state where people can just build and accumulate wealth forever. There's limits on that capitalism. Um, and it makes it so that really everyone gets a fresh start every 50 years, which means basically once in everybody's lifetime, all their debts get wiped out and they get to start fresh. And for a number of people, they're going to get to go back to their grandparents' house and they're going to get a little piece of land that they can start to work. And they get a fresh start. If they're smart, they plan this immediately after they're done with college. So all those student debts are gone and they don't have to you know, work at Denny's for too long. So... 
this is a building block then, and they have this kind of commodity that they can work with. Uh, and it does kind of, if, if you look back to the original curse of Adam, the working of the land is the curse. And God wants his people to be working the land. Uh, so he basically is having Israel kind of carry this out, and they're locked into that land piece. Um, and it's work-based. Everybody gets a chance to do it, but you're going to work. And God creates this connection between work and worship that's fairly close. So if you're obeying God, you're going to be working for six days and worshiping for one. If you're in Israel, you're going to get land to work every 70 years or every 50 years, and you're going to get there. So I want to point out, too, because sometimes people take passages like this and they build it out into an entire theology. And this is one of those things. The idea that God wants to have land transfer according to his law is not necessarily what, what is kind of popularly um, considered liberation theology. So if you go to South America, Central America, a lot of the, the communist revolutions and those kinds of things, the people that agree with those that are Christian tend to go to passages like this and look at it and say, look, God doesn't like land ownership. Um, and I think that's an extreme reading of this passage where God's actually assigning land ownership and then reassigning it back to the owners every 50 years. I don't think this is a passage that really justifies the ownership of land by the government or anything like that. But you will see that when you read liberation theology, they'll often go to passages like this and two or three others, and they really kind of take them out of the context. I'll give an example. This only has to do with agriculture and land use. It has nothing to do with tanneries, clothiers, education, the ministry or the priesthood, military, government, construction projects, engineering for Zach, uh, art and art studios. All of those vocations have really nothing to do with Jubilee. It's just the land and the ability to grow crops. And that's really the only thing in any society, in any place in the world, that's the origination of wealth production. Um, so that idea that you can grow a food out of dirt is the starting point for any society to have wealth. Because um, food is always worth something because people eat it. Unless you're growing rutabagas and then nobody really wants to eat it and they're not worth a lot. Um, but that's aside the point. My wife's just shaking her head. Stay on script, Sean. This curbs some unfair dealings. It, it curbs a permanent lower class. Um, at least among the Israeli people. And it encourages, it encourages learning because if you're seven years away from Jubilee and you're broken and you're, and you're in debt, then when you get that Jubilee opportunity in seven years, you have hope to look forward to. And when it comes, you want to be ready to do it. So if your parents and you have for 50 years not been raising crops, you kind of want to learn agriculture. So I think it creates an opportunity to, for learning institutions to start to form around Israel if they do that. At the very least, it's a fresh start every 50 years, and that is baking the idea of hope into your national economy, that hope will drive how people think and how they do things. If they do it, it's a reset. It also has to do with bankruptcy. In, in the United States, again, uh, maybe this is a U.S. history kind of talk, but we instituted this idea of bankruptcy here in the United States as an institution, and it's largely Bible-based off of Jubilee that you should have an opportunity to get a fresh start, and that actually encourages people to take risks and try big business ideas. And if they don't work, you can not be permanently in debt at the end of it. You can declare bankruptcy, and there is a legal way to get out of it. In that sense, 
if you go look up people throughout um, throughout American history that have declared bankruptcy, you get quite an interesting list of people. Abraham Lincoln was one of those people. Henry Ford, the Ford Motor Company, was not his first business venture. So he needed hope for bankruptcy or a jubilee or a release from his debt. Walt Disney failed in his first business effort, had to declare bankruptcy. Um, for, for all of you who love chocolate, Milton Hershey failed and declared bankruptcy. Uh, if, if you like ketchup, the H.J. Hines guy, he, was a, he went bankrupt in his first try. P.T. Barnum, I think, went bankrupt a few times. Uh, it was a circus with that guy. Will Smith and a number of other musicians declare bankruptcy because to put an album out and pay for a concert tour is extremely expensive, but if your album flops and you have all these other expenses, declaring bankruptcy in the music world happens all the time. It's really common. In my generation, it was Cyndi Lauper. Um, Mike Tyson and George Foreman both declared bankruptcy, and uh, George Foreman was able to go on to create little mini barbecues for us so we could uh, continue to enjoy the Foreman grill. Even the president of the United States, Donald Trump, has declared bankruptcy multiple times. Um, but it is a legal way. It's a way in which people can take very big risks and actually be able to try them out and see if they work and have hope to continue on if they fail. So in verses 15 and 16, we see this economy-based return of things or a jubilee or a release from economic pressure and plan around it. If you plan around it and you seek God first, you obey God first, God will bless you. Jesus says the same stuff about things, about planning around God. See, and we know this verse, it's a famous, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. So if you spend your life worried about the things, you're going to kind of not have the hope of jubilee as part of how you think. First think of God and plan everything around God as you start. And I think for a lot of us that come to Bible study on a Sunday night, you've all experienced this when it comes to planning your calendar around something that you're going to commit to God. It's amazing how quickly people will want that time from you. And they'll, they'll want to plan things during that one time during the week. We only do this one hour a week. And think of how precious that time gets to us, but we do it in hope of um, that desire to be with God and to learn about what God has to say. And there's a blessing in that. Verse 18 so you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them. Don't just be readers of the word, be doers of it and perform them. And you will dwell in the land in safety. And then the land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. So like Jesus says, like if you do what I'm asking you to do, the safety is a huge promise to give to a nation. Because if they're surrounded by other nations that might want their produce and wealth, uh, God's promising them in that year they're, they're going to have safety and they're going to have provision. Safety is in both, in fact, something that you feel and it's the reality of something that you don't have things attacking you. So they're confident in their hope of jubilee. They're confident in the Sabbath and they can live without worry or they can be carefree. And most of us living in the United States, we live fairly carefree lives and that we don't have a fear of being invaded and we don't have a fear of some of these things, but in a lot of places of the world, that's not something that's a given necessarily. One sign that a culture then is falling away from God is that they don't have safety and that the people of that country start to live in fear and that becomes a part of their culture. When fear dominates, you know the culture is falling away from God because if a culture is generally doing what God asked, you shouldn't have a lot of fear. 
because God says, if you observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them, you will dwell in the land in safety. That's a promise to the people that they can dwell with that sense of peace. And if you say, I like how God preempts, it's a natural thing if you're not going to grow food every seven years that you would say, what happens then if we don't have food to eat? And that's a natural and a legitimate worry. God preempts that and actually answers the question before it's asked. Verse 20, and if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year since we shall not sow or gather our produce? Then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year and will bring you enough produce for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year, until its produce comes in and you shall eat the old harvest. So first let's understand this verse. In year six, they're going to get a bounty crop and there's tons of produce. In year seven, they're not growing anything. They can still eat the bounty crop, but then God's going to actually give them enough for the next year while they're harvesting and growing things. They'll have enough to eat through that harvest too. So he's going to give them three years worth of provision in one year. God, in his grace, doesn't expect them to have faith in this regard. If you're going to do what God tells you to do in this regard, God's going to provide what they need before they have to even have faith that they'll be provided for. That's a pretty amazing thing. So knowing that people will see this as an unrealistic expectation, work six years, take one year off, God's going to say, I'm going to help you with this one because I get that this is a, a big ask for you, for the people. What's amazing to me, and again, I started off saying there's going to be something in Leviticus that you just can't do. At some point, like when the rich man goes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you got to sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and then you can come follow me. And the rich man kind of sadly walks away. That's the one thing you can't do. He just can't do what God's asking. And this is kind of, I read this with, this is so exciting and such a blessing. And, and we see that the people of Israel get excited about this. But to know that the rest of the story is that they don't do it is kind of bittersweet because you think this would have been such an amazing piece of our history if they would have done this. And all I can hope for is that there will be a day when we will do this and that God is setting up his eternal kingdom by making the laws all at once at the beginning of, of national history. And at the end of national history, we're going to actually see this happen. And wouldn't that be great that we give up our, all of our plans for one year and we trust that God will provide for us just like he provided in the garden. That idea that we can walk and talk with God. I think that every seven days we get a little image of this. If we take our Sabbaths off, God blesses us with more time and less busy life. And it doesn't make any sense. Why, if I work six days, why, do, if I take one day off, why does my life seem less busy than if I work seven days? Why do I feel like I have more time? Why am I more productive? Why do I actually do better emotionally, physically, financially, if I do my Sabbaths faithfully? So God gives people a chance every week to get a little bit of faith in this and see and feel God's blessing when they do it. If you take Sabbath off, God will bless you. What that looks like on it every seven years takes a little bit more of a planning leap and people have a lot harder time doing it. But it's one of those things. If you do it, it works. It really does. Um, and, and it brings blessing. So in verse 21, God doesn't expect his people to go out and be begging. He doesn't expect them to really trust. He's going to give them this bumper crop and they get to see the prophet first and then trust. But doing it is much, much harder. 
it's so much easier to just do what we think we need to do each year, each, each week, each month, each year, than to do what God's doing. And that requires a mature faith. That's why this is at the end of Leviticus. This is a form of worship that chooses God over what looks to be very good. It's so much easier if I could, if we look at the Ten Commandments and say these are things that are right and wrong, it's so much easier to not do bad things because we know they're bad things and we're trying to work them out of our life and we struggle with that than to not do things that are kind of good because working and, and providing for the family is kind of good. So to not do good things because God says to take a Sabbath, that's a lot harder ask. And that's something that I think is a challenge to any believer's walk, to just take that time. It's easier, I think, in academia when your, your employer gives you the seventh year off and that that's been built into the economy of that workplace. But I understand that, that most people don't work in academia. So even thinking of something like this is a huge challenge. Verse 23, the land shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine and you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. So we give everything to God. This is a huge shield against greed. The land doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And it's God's center of the earth in Israel that he's going to have. Um, God then blesses them in his land. Deuteronomy 28.8, the Lord will command the blessing on you in your storehouses and in all to which you set your hand and he will bless you in the land which the Lord God is giving to you. So again, God's making it very clear you don't own things, God owns things, right? It's The land is mine in verse 23. Actually, if you look at uh, geog the geographical society looks at all the land mass on earth, and if you try to find a center point geographically to all the landmass on earth, that center point is in, a, is in Israel. And it's actually the physical center of the landmass on the earth. And in the center of Israel is a town called Jerusalem. Um, and in the center of Jerusalem is a, an area called the Temple Mount. So literally the physical center of the world uh, is this Temple Mount um, that is going to be a blessing to the whole world. And, uh, you know, Isaiah 19.24 predicts that at the end of the age, Israel will bless the world from this spot. It's interesting then when he says, and all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption to the land. You're going to give this to him. And God's basically saying that this land is his and he's going to bless the world through Israel from this land. So out of curiosity, I wanted to see if Isaiah was right. Are we towards the end of days? Are we seeing Israel bless the world? And it takes a very short amount of time to figure out that in the 50 years that Israel has reclaimed the land as a Jewish land, um, they have developed in almost every field of science they've made advances that they have shared with the world. Um, just to note a few, on the, the 6th of this month, so uh, May 6, 2020, uh, CBN News reported that the Israel Institute for Biological Research cracked the first antibody that actually treats the coronavirus. It's not an antivirus, so it doesn't uh, stop or, or prevent the coronavirus, but it's an antibody that treats the coronavirus. And Israel then is sharing that with the world and blessing us in a medical sense on a very real issue, and they just bring safety and peace out of that work they're doing. They also have developed drip irrigation methods that are now the standard in California farming. Rooftop hot water solar systems 
rocket interception systems because they have people shooting rockets at them every day. So the Iron Dome works in a way that Reagan's Star Wars program never did. It actually shoots rockets out of the air and creates a safetyer piece for the people of Israel. They are the developers of laser projection keyboards, mathematics, chemistry. They develop quasi-crystals. In physics, they're developing new research on quarks. In optics, medicine, biotech, they're developing a nanowire um, that they can use for computing. They were the ones that developed flash drives, if any of you use a thumb drive or flash drive. In agriculture, they're developing biological pest control methods that will reduce chemical use on crops around the world. Zero discharge fisheries, which are changing science classrooms all over the world to do hydroponic systems in their science classrooms. And in the world of energy, they're the ones developing super iron batteries, which are two to three times more effective than our lithium batteries. And of course, in martial arts, they developed Krav Maga. So if you're interested in that, you can learn how to kill people with your bare hands. God says, you are strangers and sojourners with me. Who better can a country travel with than God? And when you see a country that the witness they have is what they do to bless the world, there is no greater country in the world that has blessed the world more than Israel in that way. So they're strangers, they're visitors, they're all coming back. What's interesting about Israel right now is they come from all over the world and they um, even recruited New Yorkers to come back um, to Israel, uh, New York Jews. That, there was an invitation this week to do that. So they're coming from all over the place. They're sojourners, they're travelers, but they're doing it with God. And God has continued to bless this country in interesting ways. It's a reminder that they're taken care of. And at the same time, on the flip side of that coin, that's a reminder that God will remove them from that land whenever he needs to. And he has multiple times. Um, they have been ported out of the country physically, hauled off to other places, and then God gathers them and brings them back into the land. There's no other country on earth that looks like this. And that is and bears witness to God. Verse 25. We're going to deal with poverty now. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. But if he's not able to have it restored, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his possession. It's interesting when in verse 25 it leads off with, if your brethren becomes poor. The idea that poor is some sort of other is not even part of the discourse or not even a part of how God talks to Moses. If one of your brothers becomes poor, in other words, don't separate yourself from people. Be becoming poor is something that can happen. And then redeeming relative in verse 25 is karov or near at hand or someone who's a neighbor or kin to you. A redeeming relative is what we're going to come to call a kinsman redeemer, someone who's very close that can step in and help out. So there's a responsibility that God gives to the people of Israel to take care of each other and to help each other. And that has served the Jewish people for centuries, millennium. The Book of Ruth is based on this concept of a kinsman redeemer that can buy people out of their out of their poverty. And Boaz, of course, buys a whole piece of land back using this law in order to get Ruth to be his wife. Jesus is called our kinsman redeemer. And 
and makes a claim on us, which can be done at any time, if someone owns something and they've given it away to someone else, a redeemer can buy that back at any time uh, as long as they give fair market price for it. And in 1 Corinthians 6, it says that all Christians were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in spirit, which are God's. Ezekiel 34, 27, the, the dream that God will dwell with those who he freed from slavery is part of this concept that has to do with Jesus. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield her increase. So we're in a year of Jubilee. They shall be safe in their land and they shall know that I am the Lord. Again, safety is a promise we just talked about. And when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. There's an economic plan here that has a spiritual match or mirror. That the dream of God is that we can dwell with him in safety because he has bought us back into the family. There's going to be a day when we are freed from sin and the shackles of sin and we get to dwell and abide with God safe in his land. I'm going to keep going. Verse 29. If a man sells a house in a walled city, an apartment building, that he may redeem it within a whole year after it's sold, and within a year he may redeem it. But it's, if it's not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house in the walled city belongs permanently to him who bought it throughout the generations. It shall not be released in the year of Jubilee. Jubilee only has to do with physical land. So if you're building a city or an urban center that's not really owned by a farmer, and you build, when they say a house in a walled city, those walls were the highest thing in the city to keep the, the bad guys out. And on the inside of the wall, you'd build your houses right on top of that wall, and they would do them on top of each other. So that the whole inside of that wall would be thicker and more durable, um, but it was also housing. And that wasn't necessarily for farming crops. It was for urban dwellers. And urban dwellers aren't applying here. Verse 31, however, the houses of the villages which have no wall around them shall be counted as the fields of the country. They can be redeemed and they shall be released in the Jubilee. Nevertheless, the cities of the Levites and the houses in the cities of their possession, the Levites can redeem at any time. And if a man purchases a house from a Levite, remember Levites didn't get land. Uh, so they had Levite cities and there would be a little priest city in every one of the tribes of Judah. Then the house that was sold in the city of his possession shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the children of Israel. But the field of the common land of their cities may not be sold, for it's their perpetual uh, possession. So there's an exemption for Jubilee when it comes to urban housing. Um, they, uh, the cities don't produce agricultural crops. They consume agricultural crops. So this creates a law with which... The Israelites, especially if they want to build wealth or be or build build prosperity for themselves, it's a really good investment to build a city because you can own that through Jubilee. So lo and behold, Israeli cities prospered and they prospered very well. And most cities that have high Jewish populations today still prosper because you've got a, a culture of people that seek to build wealth outside of agriculture in addition to having agricultural land. So you've got people that are good hat makers and good clothiers and bankers, and they take up other professions so that they can bypass this law of Jubilee. Then we talk about lending to the poor. If one of your brethren becomes poor, again, they use the word brother here. They're not the poor, that abstract group of people over there. They're your brothers and your family. 
If your brothers become poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him. And that's a command, like a stranger or a sojourner. A stranger or a sojourner is what God just called them. You're a stranger and a sojourner in my land. Therefore, when you have people come into your land that are poor, you're going to help them that he may live with you. Verse 26, take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money or usury or lend him your food as a, at a profit, for I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you land in the, of Canaan and to be your God. So when the poor are there, you don't make money off poor people. Bad idea for God, and he doesn't want to see that happen. This shows a great mercy. They, this really hasn't been paid attention to um, because I know that they charge interest on student loans. And we still do that in America. And I do think that's one of those areas where people are making money off the poorest and the people economically that have the least resources in our society. And it's not okay with God. Poverty can happen not just because of sloth, but because of a hardship, because of a tragedy, because of an accident that makes it so people can't work. And the idea is if you have somebody that lives among you who can't go and earn for themselves, you should take care of them. And you have then this culture of mercy. In verse 20, 36, take no usury that's, uh, or interest. It means making, if I borrow you money and then, and then you pay me back, but you pay me something in addition, uh, that's usury. That's me making money off of you. So there's all sorts of great examples of them getting around this idea. Um, because if somebody needs to borrow money, they're probably poor. Um, and God's basically saying, this isn't how I want people to make a living. You don't make money off of poor people. You just give them what they need. In Jeremiah 5, 5, you can see that they get too greedy as a nation and they take the abundance from year 6 and then they keep farming in year 7 to get even more rich. Uh, and without those resets, you get people that kind of accumulate and get lots of wealth. And this is where Jeremiah in, in chapter 5 says that, uh, that in Israel there are found wicked men and they lie in wait to set snares and they set traps and they catch men as a cage full of birds so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they've become great and, and grown rich. They've grown fat and they are sleek and they surpass the deeds of the wicked and they don't please the, plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper and the, and the right of the needy they don't defend. Interestingly, when John the Baptist asks Jesus, are you the Messiah? Jesus starts talking about that he's come to bring hope and he's come to the poor and the helpless and he's, and he's bringing those things. This, uh, with Jesus and John the Baptist and that interchange, Jesus uses these kinds of laws to say, this is how you know I'm the Messiah, is that I've come to the poor and I'm taking care of them. And this is the same kind of thing where Jeremiah is accusing Israel of doing the opposite of what this chapter in Leviticus says to do. Safety versus fear, provision versus affluence, caring for the poor is to, in the Jewish worldview, is to offer them work in the fields so Every seven years, you can go pick your own food. So to care for the poor means to let them do, to provide for themselves and to not cut the corners of the field. We saw that in the last chapter. In this chapter, we see that caring for the poor means offering them kindness, not taking advantage of them. And we see that that's part of how God wants people to be taken care of. And in Jeremiah, we see that caring for the poor means not setting traps for them to take advantage of them even more. So if they don't know the same things we know about 
finance and amortization charts. That's not an opportunity to rip them off. Yet in America, we see this, and this is where people get really frustrated with economic policy in America. Everywhere you look, there's scams trying to rip people off that don't know better, right? We go, they target people and go after them. There's legal scams um, where we take advantage of people, but they've just passed laws to make it okay. For instance, when you look at your student loans or your credit card debts, the interest on those loans is accrued every single day. If you look at your retirement fund, in all likelihood, the interest on that is accrued every month or every year. In other words, you could have the same interest rate on both loans, but you are going to get further and further behind as the, the, the loans that put you in debt actually grow faster than the loans that are saving up or adding money and wealth. So it's a scam, but it's legal. And they're ripping people off that are in the toughest place. Um, it's interesting, uh, and this is something that, that, that you kind of learn in higher ed. When you go to college, they actually ask for your family's income. And the reason for that is because every college in this country bases your financial aid package off of how much money you have. In other words, they want to take as much money as they can from people's middle class and lower caste families that they, they, they're going to sap everything they can from you. That's income-based, not merit-based for college. It's an interesting kind of thing. Or even recently in our family, we ordered an exercise bike from Sears. And we're very upset about this. After a month, we call them and say, we've paid you money, where's our exercise bike? And they say, oh, well, we manufacture that over in China. So you can ask them a, a perfectly, I think, an, a logical question like, why did you sell us a product you didn't have in stock? I mean, we get that it's not in stock and you fulfill it a couple weeks later, but you literally started construction on what we bought after we bought it, and you asked for the full price of it. So they're sitting on our money for a month, and it's not drawing interest for us, and we still don't have a product in our hands. These kinds of business practices are things that God calls snares. They're things that God hates. It is people that are getting rich and sleek, and they're profiting off of other people that are helpless. God wants, in this chapter of Leviticus, a very different kind of people. He wants a people that aren't, not only are they not sucking everything off the land, they're not sucking everything off the poor either. And these topics go together in that light. He doesn't want his people to be greedy and live their entire life for money because you can't serve both God and money. And it's one thing to work hard for six years, but in the seventh year, how about you don't work hard? And you just give that one to God and you just trust the Lord because it's his land. He owns it. You are strangers and sojourners in verse 23. You used to be in this state, Israel. I got you out of Egypt. It's my land, he declares. Fear of the Lord is what he asks for. Now here's a conviction moment. <laughs> the way we're supposed to treat people is we're supposed to treat people like they're angels in disguise. And when we have strangers or sojourners, we're supposed to maybe provide a place for them to stay, something for them to eat. We're supposed to take care of them like the Good Samaritan takes care of people. God even compares our treatment of those that are less fortunate than us as how we're going to be judged when we go to heaven. And for me, this is a convicting thing. Matthew 25, you know this story. Matthew 25, and I'm going to read starting at verse 37. And I love the Bible because I do like, for me, I like being convicted because it, it makes change. 
and it helps me to be a different and a better person. So I'm reading this not as an accusation, but to even accuse my own heart and to convict myself of what maybe I should be thinking about when it comes to people that are less fortunate, people that don't have a place to stay, right? Matthew 25, verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in or naked and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer them and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, in so much as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, then you did it to me. Notice the use of stranger and brothers right? This is closely tied to this law we're reading about in Leviticus. And those words would acute that off. When one of your brothers is in trouble, you should take care of them. And when you do that, it's like you're doing it to God because you're obeying the commandments that God gave you in Leviticus. Verse 41, then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't come visit me. It's sad with the coronavirus thing, we can't visit people in hospitals. And we're supposed to be doing that. It's a command. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't minister to you? And he will answer them saying, assuredly, I say to you, insomuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. One of the dividing lines for God between if you're going to heaven or if you're going to hell is how you treat people that are struggling and how you take care of them. Are you willing to give up a seventh of your life to serve and help? Is hospitality a way of life for you? Do you budget and plan for it? Do you say, I'm going to take a portion of my wealth and instead of hoarding it and sucking everything I can out of my, my paycheck, I'm going to leave some of that to the side in case somebody I know runs into trouble. Because we're at that time right now, especially with the coronavirus, we all know people that are struggling. Are we ready to help them because we've planned accordingly? Because with Jubilee and seventh year Sabbath, the Jewish people had to plan accordingly so that they were ready to do what they needed to do. It's assumed that poor people would be with them all the time. And Jesus even said, the poor will always be with you. There's always an opportunity to serve and help. The difference, I think, with the idea of helping the poor for a Jewish mentality and maybe an American mentality is we think of helping the poor as a handout. And the Jewish people never thought that. Helping the poor was assumed that the poor people were doing what they could when it came to work six days a week. So this is not helping your 35-year-old son not have a job and live in your basement. That's not what we're talking about here. This is people that are working six days a week, but maybe they're at a position in life where they're not earning enough to buy their own place or do their own thing. So then there's a law concerning slavery. And again, the American idea for slavery is really colored by our history. The Jewish idea of slavery is that this was a, a more permanent relationship with employees and they used slavery as a way to kind of move things back and forth. And the only difference is they couldn't quit their job because they were bound by contract to serve this other family. And we saw uh, earlier that slavery was even one where people could choose to be slaves or put themselves into slavery in order to get out of debt. So that's what we're talking about here. In verse 39 of Leviticus, if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, 
you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and a sojourer, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. So for Jewish people, for Hebrews, if another Hebrew wants to sell themselves to you, that's fine, but we're going to do it as an employee relationship from which you can leave at any time. Where a slave relationship is one that you can't leave until the contract is done, right? You're, you're committed to be there. So for these folks, they would say you can serve, but in the year of Jubilee, the slaves are going to go free. All slaves are going to go free especially the Jewish slaves or God's people will be freed on the year of Jubilee. Again, creating kind of a prophetic element to this whole thing. So God's plan for his people is not to be slaves. That's why he got them out of Israel. And that's why he creates this law for them going forward too. Slavery here then is a category for anyone who does not have land who needs to eat. And they're going to be then slaves somewhere in order to eat. Verse 41. Then he shall depart from you, year of Jubilee, he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family, and he shall return to the possessions of his fathers. <clears throat> For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. Again, God makes that connection for us. You shall not rule over him with rigor, but you shall fear your God. When you rule over people that work for you, you don't do it like your God. You do it like your stewards of other of God's children that work for you. So a kind management process, or to do it without harshness, without cruelty. Verse 44, And as for your male and female slaves whom you may have from the nations that are around you, non-Jewish people, <clears throat> from them you can buy, and buy male and female slaves. Moreover, you may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they begot in your land, and they shall become your property. You, sh you may take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as a possession. <clears throat> they shall be your permanent slaves. But with regard to your brothers, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over one another with rigor. In other words, Jewish people could buy slaves or accept slaves from nations around them because they didn't have an inheritance in the land. So when the year of Jubilee came around, they weren't going to go back to the land that they inherited because they don't have any. So when you say an Assyrian wants to sell themselves into slavery to you, uh, you can agree to take them under your roof, but you're responsible for them until they die. Or if they, you're, you die, your children still have responsibility for them. You don't put people out on the street. They're able to stay on your farm or your kibbutz or your commune or live on your um, plantation, um, but you take care of them and you do it without harshness until the day they die. They're employees. They stay with you. So it's common then for the poor to do this in the ancient world. Uh, this is that idea of an employee being a worker that would kind of work for you during the day and they stay with the land. as a per That's where they make their home and their family and they're there permanently. Uh, so agrarian life and agrarian cultures need workers and that's just the nature of it. And everywhere in the world where we have agrarian uh, culture, even today here in Minnesota, uh, if you go out to any of the farm area, the, a lot of those farms need to hire seasonal workers. Uh, so we have a population of people in Minnesota that would be day laborers that would work on these farms. Uh, and, and if there were Jewish landowners, they would be expected to treat those people with dignity and respect. So in that sense, in all of these cultures, you're going to find this population that's going to be there. They're always going to be with us. Spiritually speaking, every one of us, according to Paul, is enslaved to sin in that we've given our whole life all the way till death to the imprisonment of sin, and that's part of the spiritual significance of Jubilee and redemption. 
is that you can be bought out of that slavery at any time if you're a child of God. And to be a child of God, all you got to do is ask to be adopted. So the law that we see in the Old Testament fits the New Testament vision of Christianity, and it fits it perfectly. You ask God to be adopted into his family, and you become part of his family. Now you're a brother. You're not a foreigner. You're in the family. You're not out of the family. And if you're in the family, come year of Jubilee, you will be freed from your sin. Verse 47. Now, if a, for, a sojourner, a sojourner is a traveler that might settle on the land for a season. A stranger is someone who visits the land and comes for a short period of time. So if a sojourner or a stranger close to you becomes rich and one of your brothers who dwells by him becomes poor and sells himself to a stranger, so Jewish people selling themselves to non-Jewish people, or a sojourner close to you or to a member of the stranger's family, after his sold, he can be redeemed again. As long as this interchange happens in Israel, the law says that they can still be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, a kinsman redeemer or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who is near of kin to him with his family may redeem him, or he can redeem himself. So at any point in time, they can buy themselves out of these contracts. So for a Jewish person, the law gets reversed, and they have to do that, and they have to pay full price. So full price then is based, we've already seen in this chapter, based on how long it is till the Jubilee. Thus, verse 50, 50 verses, oh my goodness, Thus he shall reckon with him who bought him the price of his release shall be according to the number of years from the year that he was sold until the year of Jubilee. It shall be according to the time of a hired servant for him. So you buy out of a contract and that contract's based on the 50 year Jubilee, the whole country, the whole economic system, not only buying the land being based on that, but buying and selling employees is based on that. Verse 51, if there are still many years remaining, according to them, he shall pay the price of his redemption from the money which was bought. And if there are just a few years until the year of Jubilee, then he shall reckon with him according to his years. He shall repay him the price of his redemption. He shall be with him as a yearly hired servant, and he shall not rule with him with rigor over him in your sight. In God's sight, we don't treat people like garbage, ever. And we do that with respect and dignity. The ruling over a hired servant is one that should be done well. And anytime you see a boss-employee relationship, it should be one of respect, dignity, truth. And I think that's one of the things that even as Christians, we try to do that in the workplace. All management done then, and I think this verse 53 is really important. It assumes that anytime one person manages another person, that it's done with God watching that relationship. It's done with God's eyes on it, and it should be done with mercy and fairness. Another piece here is this idea of redemption. The redemption is not according to the debt. It's according to the future time that will be lost too. So if you buy an employee out of a contract, you also have to purchase the years they would have served up until Jubilee. That's interesting. So if I've given myself over to sin and I have given it my life over for all of eternity to be a slave to sin because I've chose sin at some point in my life and then I'm claimed by that person or that, 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 that employee then to redeem me is to redeem my soul for all of eternity. If it's not just the price of sin that has to be paid, atonement, but there has to be a, a sin offering and a trespass offering, and the to buy me out means you have to not only pay that price, but you have to pay all future years that I would have been a slave, and I would have been a slave for all of eternity, 
then the price to redeem any human being for all of eternity is an eternal price that has to be paid by this law. You need an eternal sacrifice to redeem an eternal slave. And this is where the, the disciples got very excited when Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered death, meaning he's an eternal high priest, an eternal king, an eternal landowner, and an eternal kinsman redeemer that can claim someone and actually pay the very expensive price of someone's soul. Last verse, last couple verses. And if he is not redeemed in these years, then he shall be released in the year of Jubilee, he and his children with him. For the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. We just keep hearing that phrase through Leviticus. I am the Lord your God. I set the rules. I determine when the feasts are. I do the prophecy. I own the land and I own the people that I've claimed. And God has bought us with a price, a very high price. And it's expensive then to buy people to do that. But this is the same word that gets used. This idea of, of this acceptable year of the Lord. I am the Lord your God. This redemption, this uncountable price. Isaiah 61.10 uses that word shaneh. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to mourn and to comfort all that mourn. Jesus, this is what he reads in the synagogue in declaring that that year had just come when Jesus show up. They are my servants. The law doesn't redeem people. God does. And I think that's super clear here. And that's a point Paul makes is that the law only accuses people. The law only determines what's wrong. And then when we do it, we are now guilty under the law. And the law never redeems anyone. And that's the problem with the Mosaic system, according to the disciples and to Paul and other New, New Testament writers. This is the thing. 1 Corinthians 6.20, we are bought with a price. We're purchased. And we're being purchased under this law in Leviticus. To understand what they're saying in the New Testament, you have to understand this chapter. This idea that we can be bought and that we are friends of God, John 15, 15. We're friends of God. We're brothers. We're brethren. And God has made us that. So when we want to understand God's promises, we look at the law of Israel and how they're kept and how he does it. it you know, in a lot of different things, when we want to understand the power of God, we look at Genesis and his creation. And that's the proof. Look around at what God can do. Take a walk in the woods and experience God's power. If you're in doubt about his power, look at creation. If you're in doubt about God's love, look at what he did in Exodus for this group of people that were slaves in Egypt. Or even better, if you want to see God's love, look at the cross. Look at what he's willing to do to buy you back from slavery. And when God's prophecy and promises are in doubt, all we need to do is look at the planet and see that there's still this little country called Israel sitting in the middle of the center of the world blessing the planet. If his promises are in doubt, look at Israel. And that's why the law of Israel is so important. And it's still so important as Christians that we look at the Jewish people and we honor and respect their role in human history. And what God's doing with them whenever he puts them together as a country is they start to prosper and bless people. And that's exactly what's happening right now over in the Middle East, is there's this little country that is prospering and blessing people on land that we thought was desolate and unusable. And they're making use of it in a way that they're producing more food that they can eat. If God's promises are in doubt, 
understand his law. This is what got read when Hezekiah reassembled the people and they, they started to build the walls of Jerusalem. This is what got read when Solomon instituted the temple. And they read this to the people and the people rejoiced. This sounds amazing. We want this jubilee. These Sabbaths sound incredible. If God keeps his promises, this is a really good way to live. And we'll have a sabbatical every seven years from our work and we'll just do it. But they never do. And that's, again, the bittersweet part about it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your holy word. Thank you for the book of Leviticus, what a journey it is. And Lord, I pray that as we look at financial submission to you with our land, with our wealth, with our, our time, Lord, that we give our time to you once a week, but we're supposed to give our time to you every seven years. And even every seven times seven years, we take a jubilee year and we give it to you. Lord, if we do these things, you've promised blessing, but these are so hard to do. And it's so easy to relegate them off to, well, that's culturally irrelevant or that's Old Testament stuff. But Lord, your promises endure and you've kept them throughout history. And that's so hard for us to do. And Lord, I just, I, I even for my own heart, to take a year off of a career or a profession, it is so hard to do that. But Lord, I just thank you for the blessing you've given my family this year for the blessing you've provided us. And what an amazing thing that is, that you do provide, and you do provide bounty and prosperity even when we do those things. Lord, you are true to your word, and I just think you're, that is so amazing. Um, Lord, you are above us and so much more mighty and powerful, but you still call us your friends. And I don't understand that. I struggle with the idea that you would want to buy me, but you do that you are close and a kinsman redeemer and that you sent your only son to die for us on a cross to pay the price for our enslavement to sin. Lord, what a powerful thing to do. As you redeemed Israel from Egypt, you have redeemed, redeemed us from sin, uh, from our own bad choices, from the things we've done wrong. Lord, we just celebrate that. That's so amazing. Thanks for writing it into your law. And Lord, I just pray that you put the law of God on our hearts, as David said in his Psalms. Just write it on our hearts. That anything in this law, Lord, is something that we can absorb and take in, no matter how tough it is to accept. Lord, help us to submit to your will, because you're God and we're not. For you are the Lord, our God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.